0: Genetics Podcast Episode 25 Welcome to the 25th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Dirk Schübeler, director at the Friedrich Miescher Institute in Basel. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Dirk, for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you studied biology and obtained your PhD in Braunschweig, Germany, working with Jürgen Bode, followed by a postdoc at, at the Hutchinson Center Cancer Center in Seattle, USA, with Mark Grudin. I hope I pronounced this correctly. Correct. In 2003, you started your own lab then at the FMI in Basel, where you are still today. And you were appointed as a new director of the FMI just weeks ago. So my congratulations to this. Thank you. And a question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science?
1: Yes, I was highly interested in biology in high school. I... uh, um, was one of the areas that fascinated me. Many others did as well, but uh, the reason I stuck with it was simply because I I thought this this was so much fun thinking about this and, and and you know thinking about evolution and I felt this this was I found this was totally fascinating. I was a bit insecure if I should pursue this as a study, uh, but I luckily had a biology teacher at the time who really supported me even even went with me to his university and allowed me to talk to professors as a high school student and uh and they kind of you know supported my decision you know i grew up in a countryside there was no biologist to talk to uh, other than the teachers and so he really um enabled me that and uh yeah i think that that uh, kind of gave me a bit the confidence uh or the the insight to explore this and uh yeah it's been it's been i think it's, it's something that i really like and i think that i'm yeah, uh, uh, I'm really enjoying. So I never look back.
0: And now you, as, a, as the new appointed uh, FMI director, what do you want to focus on in the coming years to move the FMI forward?
1: Yeah, the FMI has been is doing extremely strong in its science, right? So the the uh, we have very strong neurobiology, very strong epigenetic gene regulation, and uh, quanta biology where we look at complex systems, and uh, uh, there will not be much expansion of the institute. There will, of course, be occasional hires, but there's no plan to to reshape the directions. I mean, the science is going extremely strong, and you know it's all about making sure that it can flourish as it's doing now. So,
0: so more maintenance <laughs> than expansion. Well, no, it's
1: I wouldn't call that maintenance, yeah. but I think it's not. It's just simply also in the terms of uh, turnover of of uh, group leaders. It's not like we will be able to to uh, re. We repopulate you know, the institute, and, yeah. and and I think these these areas are all very strong, and they're very have been put in place with a lot of foresight. So there's no uh, urgency, but of course, keeping you know um, keeping the institute at the level it is 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 a is a challenging task, and then so it will be exciting no matter what. Yeah,
0: coming to your science, uh, one of your focus areas is uh, of your work is DNA methylation. And in a 2005 Nature Genetics paper, you did chromosome-wide and promoter-specific analysis to identify sites of differential DNA methylation in normal and transformed human cells. That's just reading the title of the paper. (laughs) So which difference did you find there?
1: Yeah, so this was a very important paper for my lab, right? This is is our first kind of uh, uh, done by, you know, I was super lucky to have immediately a very good postdoc, Michael Weber is now. Professor in Strasbourg, and uh, so we basically uh, wanted to look is where is DNA methylation in the genome, and back then there weren't weren't really good ways to look at this at the level of the genome, and and so we came up with the idea of using an antibody to pull down methylated DNA and then to use microarrays to look at the distribution. And then uh, we saw that basically how, how many CPG islands these are, promoters that are very CpG, which are methylated, and they're more methylated in cancerous cells. And we could, for the first time, look at this at the level of the genome. This was compared to nowadays next gen sequencing, still uh, not so high resolution. But you know, we looked at at the entire genome, looking at at certain using certain microarrays. And what we found indeed was that there are major aberrations in cancerous cells where methylation is uh, sitting, and we still really don't know yet to get to this point. Uh, what is causing this? And how much effect does it has on, on on does it have on on cellular regulation?
0: So the method you used was uh, MeDIP, right? Or was it yes. immunoprecipitation with uh, yeah using an antibody against exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. And and and, and um, there were other other approaches at the time using uh, uh, MBD domains so domains of proteins that bind methylated DNA. What I think, in hindsight, what made MeDIP so then popular to use by others is because simply we were the first to start with sonicated DNA. So you're not relying on where restriction sites are. And so it made it uh, very applicable to any kind of micro PCR detection, you're not relying on enzymatic digestions, are very trivial in a way, at the end, but that made it, uh, people were kind of when this came out, people were writing me emails about oh, I can, can I send somebody to your lab to learn it? And we just said, just try it. And then we never heard back from them. So just happened to work robustly and uh, for, for, you know, for quite some time was a very useful tool. We're not doing it anymore.
0: What is the advantage of sonication versus enzymatic digestion?
1: You're not relying on where the ends… If you basically have a certain, a certain fragment size that's just short or large, there's huge effects on your ability to pull down a fragment. Random sonication means it's random, so you look over any potential fragments and that gives you that averages things out it makes the whole the whole signal much more reliable in a way, it's the same what you do if you do chromatin i p you cross link and then you sonicate. so all the kind of way to analyze all the way to detect local peaks is exactly the same. so it just it happened there also to be exactly falling in the time where chromatin i p uh, became popular, so you could just basically follow downstream everything that you would do to detect uh, 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 chromatin IP material. So
0: you then followed up uh, on the study in 2007 and looked at uh, distribution silencing potential and evolutionary impact of promoter DNA methylation in the human genome. So what did you write on in this study? To-
1: yeah, so this was again mich- headed by Michael Weber and, and so this was a follow-up now with uh, genomic tools becoming better. We were able to look at at more promoters, more diverse promoter sequences, and uh, um, and then also related where methylation is with with histone marks, and then we noticed that all unmethylated CpG islands have uh, active histone modifications. This is something unique to to mammals. In, in in insects, in 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 all organisms that don't have the methylation, uh, this mark is only at, at active genes. It sits also in, in our genomes at unmethylated CpG islands. And the other thing that we did, we teamed up uh, with Svante Pehabo's lab uh, and compared basically methylation with germline mutations between um, uh, great apes and, and human. And so, and then we could see that basically the mutation rate as predicted uh, is the highest at, at methylated cytosines because they have a high tendency to to uh, uh, undergo ac to C2T transition, and so we could we could show we could show this prediction experimentally by looking at at methylation in sperm
0: that's that's uh, very interesting um, but so the nature of so those uh, CPG islands is be methylated or unmethylated. what what is the default? Is it uh, to be unmethylated in the first place and then based on the regulation, get methylated.
1: So, CPG islands were first discovered by uh, Agent bird. Uh, and um, as, unu- as being unusual, being CPG rich and being unmethylated. And uh, so, this is their feature. They, are, they tend to be promoters. Two thirds of our promoters in our genomes are these CPG islands. And they are CPG rich not because they gain CPGs, because the rest of the genome has lost it over time because the rest of the genome is methylated and it's also methylated in the germline. It has this high uh, rate of, of deamination. So the genome loses CPGs, but not at CPG islands. So now we look at our genome and then now we see there, there are they seem, there are these places of a lot of CGs, but they just actually only have the expected amount of CPGs. Now they are unique. They're very important because two thirds of our promoters are CPG islands. And since many of those islands are genes that are highly active, probably 80% of RNA polymerase initiation in our genome occurs at these islands. So, um, but in part they are a product of the rest of our genome being methylated, so the genome didn't start out that way. Uh, um, And that's a very interesting question, which we don't really, can really answer. Once uh, um, uh, vertebrates, at some point evolutionary started, to methylate their entire genome, immediately the promoters would have to be unmethylated to be still active because methylation is repressive. But we don't have any evolutionary leftover of this situation. This must have been at some point. Uh, and now, what we see is the result of these islands. And um, they're fascinating. We still work quite a bit on them because, as promoters, they have not been studied so clearly because they a lot of promoter studies initially were done in yeast, in drosophila, or in vitro biochemistry. Not much has been done with islands, even though they are, for us, highly relevant. But they don't behave that well in vitro, uh, so haven't been, there's not much underpinning there. And it's been kind of overlooked a bit because in gene regulation in the last 25 years, the focus was much more on developmental specific gene regulation, and that mostly happens at non-CPG island promoters. So they're a bit, despite their relevance, they have been not studied so much. So we're ch- we're trying to bit now to learn a bit more, can we gain some insights about how do how uh, which which transcription factors bind to them, all these kind of things.
0: Yeah, we'll come to the transcription factor things a little bit later. But first, uh, I wanted to focus on 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 the things that you also. I looked at yeah proteins that bind and to and to modulate DNA methylation, right? So in the first publication in Cell in two thousand thirteen, you looked at the MBD protein family. So what did you learn there?
1: Yeah, so that's uh, that's been a study by, headed by Tunja Bobek, who's now a professor in Zurich. And what Tunja was interested in is is really looking at you know, ultimately we're interested in what's the flow of information in gene regulation, right? So and ultimately it's of course DNA sequence, its epigenetic state, and then that leads to binding of, or not binding of certain proteins. And so, and so uh, we were eager to look at, and it's in the past, it's been very difficult to do this for many proteins because one needed antibodies that work, and so you know, what Tunja established is basically an approach where we highly, highly controlled, expressed several proteins and would tag them, use biotinylation to pull them out, and then bio could look at families of proteins. And so what he managed then to look at the entire MBD family, again, as CPG is first identified by Adrian lab. But, and so what he could show also looking at mutants is that, that um, indeed MBDs bind methylated CPG, but only the ones that are functional. But that for, for example, certain MBD family members don't bind methylated CPGs if they're part of a different complex. So then also binding is, is, is context specific and then he could use mutants that distinguish binding from being in that complex uh looking at mbd2 as being part of the nerd complex so this is kind of the stuff that we like because now we can we can look more comprehensively even at at families of binding proteins and ask are they all the same or are there differences and this is something of course one cannot explore really with genetics
0: what is then the function of those mbd proteins when they bind to to those methylated dna regions
1: yeah so it's clearly it's clearly what's guiding them where to bind, so and it's clear that's true also for the most prominent member, meCP2, uh, which uh, also alien identified, and it's the causal gene for, for Rett syndrome. Um, um, it's you know the, it's expected that where they then bind they cause repression. Um, there's basically two ways how methylation can repress transcription or two models. one is they're not and it's not mutually exclusive. One is that indeed, uh, MBD domain proteins bind methylated CPGs, and that, that's why how methylation leads to repression. The second model is it's a direct effect, methylation of a CPG that's part of a more complex motive of a transcription factor uh, blocks binding of the transcription factor. It's called direct repression. Of course, these two models are not mutually exclusive, and at this point, we really don't know well how much each of these contributes. Uh, this is also why we're so keenly interested in learning more about transcription factors that are methylation-sensitive, because that, of course, it's probably a combination of both.
0: So how many how many CPGs are necessary for MBD to bind? Is it just one, or is it like 10?
1: <laughs> it's It does only bind one at a time, but of course, like any DNA recognition, if there are more, more uh, binding sites in the vicinity, the local concentration will go up. Okay. Also for a transcription factor, to increase binding is to put another side adjacent to it. So basically, so molecularly, you have higher local concentration and the thing just hops from one to the other. So clearly more higher local density will, will increase binding and probably in a nonlinear way.
0: Later, you also looked at the role of DNMT3B, so the enzyme that puts the methylation on the DNA in those processes and uh, regulation, and this was also published in Nature in 2015, and I think it was also done by Tunja, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Um, Yeah. What did you find there about the role of uh, DNMT3B or the other DNMTs in DNA methylation?
1: Yeah, so again, Tunja used, applied the approach he developed, now looking at... um, DNMT3 proteins, and the idea was to look at where do they bind in the genome, but of course, um, which told which told us that, you know, they tend to bind uh, where there's a lot of methylation, That's kind of makes sense, because this is where they're active. But Tunja could also show expressing these cells, uh, these these proteins in cells that don't have DNA methylation. So where there we can monitor not only binding, but also what methylations they set. that indeed this binding leads to activity. Because Binding is one thing, activity is something else. And he could show that DNMT3 in these mouse stem cells co-locates with active genes. Active genes do have a certain histone modifications, lysine-36, methylation of histone H3, which actually all eukaryotes have. Yeast has this as well, so this is not something unique here. And uh, and he could show that, indeed, this this but this catheter recruits dnmp3b and that also then increases uh DNA methylation we just have a study in press where we show that looking at turnover rates of methylation that indeed active genes there's a lot of turnover of methylation so basically this transcription somehow erodes methylation uh, uh and then the novel methylation needs to come in and fill up these gaps
0: so yeah um so methylation may, may lead to histone marks being put there, but also histone marks lead to methylation be be written there yes this, yeah, so it's like circling around all those regulation uh, pathways
1: yeah, but this is exactly what these chromatin pathways are, right yeah. they are uh, um, and and uh, genic methylation is actually very still very enigmatic, so the, all the organisms that don't methylate their entire genome, but parts of their genome, which is true for plants, fungi, those insects that do methylate their genome, they all have in common that they methylate their genes, their active genes. This is the most canonical pattern of methylation we all observe throughout uh, all uh, trees of life. But we still we don't know what is it's what is, what is it good for.
0: Now that would have been my next question. Is it for stability, or is it for shutting it down then so that uh, transcription doesn't go out of hand?
1: yeah so in my view, it's not clear yet because there's evidence for different scenarios but the most now one thing is to be clear, this methylating your your genes comes at a price because remember we said methylation leads to higher mutations, so the last thing you would want to have higher mutation rate is your genes, so somehow this there must be very good reasons or very good selective pressure to have this methylation and the, my interpretation is that it's it's involved particularly because active genes are also sites of insertions for repetitive elements, retrovirus, etc. It probably is part of the machinery that keeps these immediately, whatever comes in there gets methylated and is basically quiet. We have our genomes have super large introns. Apparently, it doesn't really matter as much about what kind of junk we accumulate in these introns, as long as we splice them out, and this can only work with a machinery that somehow makes sure whatever jumps in there is not active, <clears throat> does not interfere with splicing. But again, this is kind of my interpretation, but it's, mm-hmm. to be really frank, it's not so clear. in mm-hmm. 36 methylation, so this histone mark, that is required, and we know this well from yeast, to again help reclosing chromatin after passage of the polymerase. So if you interfere with this in yeast, one starts to see cryptic initiation mm-hmm. in these genic regions. We think the same is happening in high eukury. much harder to see because RNA degradation is so much more efficient in these organisms and yeast, this stuff can accumulate so it's easier for us to see. Yeah.
0: So I had the impression that there is DNMT3 which is the uh, de novo methylase and there is DMT1 which uh, just um, <coughs> keeps the methylation after DNA replication. So, But now you said when there is DNA methylation then more DNMT3 comes in. So is it also a hybrid function there of DNMT3
1: so that is you know so the again this is why this is this this paper that we have in press where we're trying to get the question how much turnover is there in DNA methylation because if we look at steady state we say oh this cytosine is methylated on average 95% of the time but that doesn't tell us how much this is turning over because DNMT1 is the maintenance methyl transferase and together with some helper proteins like UHRF1 it's very good at copying methylation after replication fork um but at least what we're seeing in again mouse stem cells is that actually it's it has problems doing it in many sides of the genome so their their methylation is lost passively so dnmt ones are doing a good job partly because there's active demethylation by the tet enzymes and this is where dnmt3s are the most visible in the activity because they fill in these gaps and when i say sites of a lot of methylation i mean sites of a lot of methylation where maintenance is not so good this is proximal to enhancers this is at active genes this is the sites where basically dnmt1 <clears throat> has a hard time tet is very active and this is where dnmt3s are really kicking in and it showed us that uh basically a cytosine can be methylated uh 95 of the time but these these cytoses can have Four orders of magnitude difference in in their turnover rate. Okay. So it doesn't. It, it, it's not as stable as it looks. Is kind of our our lesson from this. Will the same be true in other cell types? That's a different question.
0: So you mentioned that this is impressed When and where will it come out? Do you know?
1: I just looked at the proofs. So yeah, okay. Nature communi- Nature Communications. I I hope it should come out. It's been long in the making. <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, but I think it's. It, I'm super happy about this because it really just at least shows some avenue how to get to that question. It's super mm-hmm. difficult because we have to do induced deletions, follow over time, it's nothing trivial, but at least it shows it can be done.
0: And um, it also does not, probably it's not a black and white picture, but some shades of gray.
1: Yeah, and it, it, again, what's exciting also for us is because a lot of the dynamics of methylation we see in proximity or, or where transcription factors bind. So there's this huge interplay between the uh, transcription factors recognize complex motifs and the chromatin machinery, and this is really at this moment in time what the lab is focusing on, trying to learn a bit more about. I mean, we always did a lot of DNA methylation, but it's not—it's not like this is all we do. Mm-hmm. I always looked at methylation as um, as one important uh, function of chromatin or one important component of chromatin, and at least at the time, a component that is much easier to tackle because there's fewer components. It's very good to measure, not, not meaning media, but by sulfide sequencing, we can do extremely precise maps of methylation, uh, ultimately more relevant, and this is nucleosomes and their modification. Now, that's molecularly a much more complex space, so a methylation for us was more, always an entry into this space of how can, how can, you know, the packaging of DNA, the modification of DNA, how is this involved in gene regulation? This is ultimately what really my, my key interest is.
0: Yeah, this would have been my next question. So you also looked at the interplay of transcription factors and their binding to DNA methylation. How do they interfere? Or how, how does uh, transcription factor binding influence DNA methylation? And now you also yeah, mentioned nucleosomes. Does it also interfere with uh, chromatin remodeling?
1: Yeah, so the, um, there are very prominent examples of transcription factors that are extremely blocked in their binding by DNA methylation of their motif. Um, and this has been also been shown in vitro. Now, we have shown this very clearly in vivo, which is important because it's unclear how this kind of subtle difference in vitro then translates in vivo, where maybe the, that difference is really not, uh, um, uh, the limiting part. Now, the big question is how many of these factors are there? And of course, it cannot be all because you need to have a CPG in your motive to be responsive, obviously. So this, this is already limiting it. Um, and uh, we just found another factor, even not looking for it to be methylation sensitive. It turns out to be methylation sensitive. So I really don't know. There's quite a few factors that are that are sensitive. We also yet don't know if that's really an acquired feature, or maybe this is what they were used to be doing in genomes without methylation, just happened to be not compatible. Since regular regions are unmethylated when they're active, it's probably useful. It keeps them away from the junk. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, but again, since we l- really lack a com- comprehensive understanding about chromatin sensitivity of soft transcription factors, to methylation, to, uh, to nucleosomes, it's very hard for us to comprehend right now. In vitro, there's a lot of differences. Juicy see, has done a very nice story, uh, work looking at in vitro, and there's a lot of difference in affinities relative to methylation. The big question always is how much does it translate in vivo into, into binding mm-hmm. versus non-binding?
0: You also looked at the DNA sequence um, and what kind of influence this has on DNA methylation and also factors that bind to the DNA methylation. How does the underlying DNA sequence influence those processes? Yeah,
1: so these CPG islands look magical, right? The CPG-rich and they're unmethylated and then who's some system, then cellular system needs to decide what is an island what's not an island, right? So and then so we tried uh, uh, first Arno Krebs in the lab, then then uh, um, uh, then later Philip Yerm and others um, trying to understand, so does it, all you need is CPGs, you do put a low, high concentration of CPGs and the cell then thinks, oh, this must be an island and treats it right and in a sense of keeping it unmethylated, uh, getting, giving it these, these uh, chromatin marks like HGK4 and this turns out to be the case. So there's no, uh, there's no. It doesn't, it doesn't. seem to be a complex rules. Basically, basically, if you're CpG rich, uh, then you know the system assumes you are an island. And there's probably some integration of uh, of, of unmethylated CpGs because there are counterparts. Uh, when we just discussed MBD proteins that bind methylated CpGs, there are also proteins, CXXC domain proteins, that only bind the unmethylated CpG. So probably this is the yin and yang that also then translates into differential readout of uh, these differentially methylated cytosines.
0: So the genomic context does not really play a role. It's just the local concentration of the CPGs that would then lead to this effect.
1: Well, I'm sure it has some gradual effect of the environment. But I mean, we, but the way we did it and the way we, we do these things tend to be go into one genomic locus and then iterate a lot of sequence variations. And then we learn these dependencies, and it might mean that at a different locus, it's, you have to be CG richer or not, but we have not surveyed the genome mm-hmm. in a sense of asking how much is the environment. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's an interesting question, but the, the, the potential combinatoric there is just impossible
0: it's, it's, it's hard to, to, to
1: account for. So we like then to be, do it surgically at one locus. There's a risk that what we see is a bit locus-specific, but at least it's real. Uh, um, ideally, one might want to do screen more sites, but it's, it becomes easy. It becomes very soon endless. Yeah. Neighborhoods, there's very different neighbors. I mean, we like this euchromatin heterochromatin idea, but it's the same as we say: if you go in a city, there's a lot of bright and less bright places, and there's very <laughs> very differences. So, uh, um, yeah, it's just uh, it's uh, it's a the genome is the vast place. So.
0: Yeah. So you have mentioned a lot of people that have worked in your lab. So. And they have gone and pursued a very successful career. It's like Oliver Bell now is group leader at the IMBN, IMB in Vienna. Tunzei Bubek is assistant professor at the University of Zurich. Tim Roloff is a lab head at Edorsia Pharmaceuticals. Uh, just to name a few of them. What is your secret to you know, your success as a mentor?
1: Well, no, I mean, I've been super lucky having very, very good people from from the beginning. Oliver Bell was my first grad student. Michael Weber was my first postdoc. And, and um this is clearly one. Um, it's one benefit from being at a very well recognized place like FMI, because even if you start, there's already some some form of traffic to the place. People apply to a PhD program. When Oliver Bell, when I interviewed Oliver Bell, he didn't know I existed. I wasn't on the website. Um, and but you have a chance to recruit such people, and this causes huge advantage. So I would not. I would not call this a mentoring. You know, I don't know what how I think these people are really really excellent, it's more important and there's the beauty in academic science, right? If these people are successful, which is great, it also means you will get continuously candidates because people look carefully for that so uh, um yeah, I think i am just been super lucky and I'm paying a lot of attention to hiring, and uh, I'm you know let's hope I continue to be so lucky getting this kind of talent in the lab and and uh,
0: yeah, fingers crossed. So to finish off this interview, I have two more rather general questions. The first one, did you at one point of your career face a situation where you reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer?
1: I think we do this all the time somehow, <laughs> right? It's a, not to a point of despair, but of course we have discontinued, uh, uh, um, discontinuous, discontinued things uh, because they didn't turn out to be so fruitful. I mean, my lab always was diverse. We worked initially also replication timing on other things. We used to as a model, uh, methylation had, um, maybe there was a bit about, bit, bit more positive feedback. It was self perpetuating, but, um, clearly we stopped at some point working on polycomb because we didn't feel we, that we could, we could get to this kind of functional questions that we were asking with the Um yeah, but I think this idea of, or this notion of, can we move forward, uh, one has this all the time, of course, nowadays is super exciting in biology, right? Because technology has advanced to an amazing speed, so there's no limit anymore. We can say, oh, well, we want to know if that if these four proteins do something. Oh, let's crisper them out. I mean, an unimaginable experiment, right? Um, and the with genetic screens, with... Uh, Genomics being a PCR, I mean, when I started out, we didn't know where to get microarrays. Who would have microarrays of mm-hmm. genomic data? Would, would we have to spot them ourselves? And now it's just a PCR reaction. I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible. So now it's fantastic. Uh, it, what's exciting about it also is that it puts, it puts the pressure back more on ideas. It's not about being able to do a certain experiment. Obviously, you need to be environment to do experiments, but it's more about coming up with the right experiment. So it's exciting.
0: So how do you decide to put a project in the bin? I mean you have man, when you have a PhD student and he or she is working very hard on it, then at some point you need to decide, well, this doesn't lead to anything. (laughs) When is the point to, to kick it in the bin?
1: There is no simple answer to this, right? That's you know when we give up a project, we never know is 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 success around the corner right? It's like hiking in the fog. We don't know are we just are we way below the peak? Is it around the corner? So we always do this decision with a certain amount of uncertainty. So I think one has to build in some kind of a goalpost along the way and say, Look, we give us time until x to get that and then we're going to give this up. And um, it also depends. I mean, and, uh, most people uh, uh we. Had, this are long discussions. there's not a one day decision on this, and also depends on the person: is he or she willing to be uh, to start something else? Because we never know, right? I mean, our progress is so nonlinear, and people just. And um, also depends on, our, you know, how much, how long are you into your PhD? Do you do? You, have you have sufficient time to explore something else? It's, it, it's a constant discussion, this is also what makes science for some so hard because we constantly have to challenge what what we do and why we do it, and on top of it, things tend to fail. so there's a lot of there's a lot of in inbuilt inbuilt negativity if you want to do rigorous science, and that you have to also enjoy that process otherwise it it's, it can be a bit exhausting
0: So in the last thirty five minutes we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give us a short summary about your most important findings? Or something that we might have missed in this interview that you wanted to share and I didn't just not spot it in your papers
1: <laughs> yeah I would not yeah I would not want to pick out I think I think I'm if I look back I think I'm super happy that we managed to do some contributions in, in also linking uh, chromatin epigenetic modification and ultimately transcription factor activity because at some point in time uh, um, these Fields were somewhat disconnected, right? As if, as, and of course, at the end of the day, gene regulation is DNA-based, and chromatin is an important tool in that process. And I think there, I think probably um, we've made some contributions, I think. And this is also something that excites me now because it's still it's still very transcription factors only bind most transcription factors one, two, three percent of their binding sites. So the majority is is masked for them, and we say, "Oh, it's chromatin, but that doesn't tell us that's, that's true on a qualitative basis, but it doesn't tell us how it works. So we still have to go a long ways to understand what is the logic that keeps you know that allows them to bind there and not there. And if we understand that, or have some in insight into that, then we should get much better in understanding regulation and misregulation of, of gene expression.
0: So this is what you're working on right now, right? what or is it what what are working on right now? Yeah, yeah always, they,
1: they, they, that that's the question, right? I mean, yeah. ultimately, there. I'm, 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 uh, ultimately, if we say we have learned something about gene regulation by looking at DM methylation, by looking at chromatin, then we sh- should get better in predicting it. If we don't get better in predicting where TFs bind, then we, it's hard to claim that we have learned something and we're far away from this.
0: I think that's a good uh, point to end this interview. Thank you, Dirk, for your time and being available for this interview.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: This was the 25th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review, subscribe our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on the future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, Check out the Active Motif blog Motivations at activemotive.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.